I forgot during our announcement time, if you've got a, if you're here for the very first time, we've got these baskets, uh, and they've got yellow cards in them. Uh, we'd love to have you give us, let us a little know about information about you. We'd love to follow up with you and tell you a little bit about our church and what we're doing. Also, uh, there's blue cards in there as well. Those are prayer cards. You'll see them. And um, if you've got a prayer need or something going on in your life that you'd like us to pray for, we would love to uh, take a moment and do just that. Uh, those baskets are not offering baskets. If you want to support our life and our church and our ministry, um, the offering table's in the back of the room, and you're welcome to, uh, to do that. So, um, I've been out of town for a couple of weeks. I'm sure you haven't noticed, but I haven't been here. Uh, we've been on some adventures. Uh, had a kind of a family gathering over the first part of the July 4th deal. My mom does this thing and invites all her kids and her husband's kids and all the grandkids, and uh, it's like a 11 grandkids. Haley, my 10-year-old, is the oldest and the only girl, and so it's just a lot of work. And uh, I needed a vacation from that vacation. And uh, we all stay in the same house. You ever done that? That's great, and it? It's awesome. Um, so we did that for four days at the lake, which was something. And then uh, I, did a, I was at a conference all this week speaking about 400 or 500 high school kids, which is a lot of fun. But I needed a vacation from that vacation as well. So, and then yesterday we dropped the 10-year-old off at camp and cried the whole way home. Um, it's just been a whirlwind of activity at our house. So we are, uh, we're here. Settle in, life is good. Um, hopefully you, uh, you had a, a good time with our guest preachers. I'm going to pick up this morning really where we left off before I, I left. We were starting into this miraculous series. The series that we taught the miraculous was really a, a picture of these miracle moments in the life of Christ. And um, I'll give you the quick little backstory, just in case you haven't been here to let you know how we got there. Um, but I was, I was doing some study sitting in this coffee shop because just kind of what I do when, now that our offices are out of my living room, sometimes the, 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 the wife says, Go find a place to be besides here. And so uh, I do that, and I was reading. I noticed this guy sitting over in the corner. He just kept staring at me, uh, which was awkward and kind of weird, but I was really curious, and he kept looking and looking. I had my Bible out, and finally kind of gets up enough courage, comes over to where I am, and he kind of stands there staring at me, and he said, what are you reading, right? Well, I, I kind of knew he knew what I was reading because, uh, you know, it was, you could tell my Bible was out there. I was like, well, you know, that's, that's my Bible. And I said, have you ever read it? And he goes, well, you know, I, I tried, but I didn't really make it through, through it. And uh, he said, have, have you read it? And I said, yeah, I've, I've read it. I've read it several, several times. And, and uh, I said, you know, and we kind of looked there kind of awkwardly at each other for a little while. And then finally I just said, you, you know, did, you didn't quite make it through it. What happened? He goes, well, do you believe, he goes, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus really did all those miracles? I mean, really, all those miracles in the Bible, do you believe that, that he really did those, that those are true? So without kind of answering his question, I said, I'm, I'm guessing you don't. And he said, well, you know, the, I don't know, it just seems so unbelievable, you know, so hard. And I said, well, is that what's kind of kept you from reading the Bible? And his, his answer was no, but that's what I think is keeping me from believing. So he and I had this conversation, I left, and, and you know, we went on. I, I began to really think about that, and, and I wrestle with the miraculous things of God. You know, like we, we look at Scripture and we say, man, that's amazing God did those things. But do we really believe that God still can do things in our life that are miraculous? Do we believe that those things uh, that, that maybe only God can do happened back then and don't happen now? What do we do with those miraculous things? And do we believe that God is still that big? And so we decided for the summer we'd be looking at these miracle moments in the life of Christ, not as a way of kind of going, oh, are these real or not? But instead saying, God, what do these miracle moments say to me about your very nature and about your character? And we're using them as, as launching off points to talk about other things. So we're not talking about the miracles and trying to, you know, talk about whether or not Jesus really had his feet on the water when he walked there. But we're really saying, what is the nature of God and the character of God 
tell me through that moment in the life of Christ. So we've been looking at those things uh, for the part of June, and we're going to be picking that up um, throughout the summer as well. And this morning, we're really going to be looking at one that kind of, a miracle that stemmed out of some conversations that I had this week while I was down in South Padre Island, Texas with all these high school kids. And I, I've spoken at these conferences for this organization before, a couple of them each summer usually, and um, a lot of my friends that are either pastors or youth pastors or whatever are involved with these organizations. So it was, it was a, I got to spend a lot of good time with some of my, um, my friends, my pastor friends, and guys that I've known for a real long time. And it, that was fantastic. But they all asked me the, really the same set of questions when we first all got together. And uh, each of them asked me the question, you know, Trevor, how is life? I'm seeing you in a while. How is life? And, and it's an interesting question if you've been around us for this year because this year has been a well, it's just been a nutty year. I mean, if you've been with our community, we've, you know, we have gone through a whole lot of things. You know, we've switched churches, we've planted the vine, we've released this thing, and God's been doing this. There's been a lot of uncertainty and some really exciting things and a lot of trust, and it's just been, it's been a really kind of, uh, of nutty. It's probably the best way to describe it, uh, 12 months. And so, you know, I, I uh, you know, because I, we're no longer part, we, we, you know, I was a Presbyterian, ordained Presbyterian pastor, no longer that, we're now a non-denominational church that's operating and loving and doing all these things, and, but that, that changes a lot of things for me and our family personally, which are great, and, and, but just been things we have to deal with, and so I'm talking to these questions, and they're going, you know, what's life, and so I'm talking about life, and I started talking about the vine, and what God is doing, and what our plans are, and that next question is always, well, what is your plan for the church? You're sitting around with a bunch of pastors and guys that you love, and they say, what's your plan for the church? started talking about that, and I really started getting convicted. Um, and I believe really through the course of the week, God was really convicting me about this idea of plans and who's really in control. And, uh, you know, what, where we try and interject our plans and our control into the sort of uh, picture of, of what God has for us. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a miracle that's really driven by that question. What is, what is my plan, or what is your plan for your life, for your circumstances? We all have plans. You've probably been asked that question a thousand times. What's your plan for retirement? What's your plan for your career, for your job? Um, what's your plan for your family? What's your plan for kids? What's your plan for marriage? I mean, you know, all those questions all have the same thing at the center, and that's your, right? What's your plan for this? What's your plan for that? Problem is, is that from a biblical standpoint or a gospel different standpoint, it's the wrong set of questions. Um, we should always be asking God, what is, what is your plan? And so we have this fundamental conflict when it comes to my plan versus God's plan. What we're going to look at today is that God shows up radically in the lives of people to demonstrate his plan is always better always better. So we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 9. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and get there as we look at this miracle moment and really look at it through the lens of God's plan and our plan for life, for things, for stuff, and why trusting God in the middle of life always wins, always wins. So if you've got your Bible, let's flip to Acts chapter 9. If you don't have one, there's one right there around you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that one, all right? That's yours. Have it, you know, and then don't say we never gave you anything. It's yours, so... um, don't say we never. Is that two double negatives? That's a double negatives. My mom would be furious. Uh, so take one of those negatives out of there. All right, book of uh, Acts chapter 9. Before we, uh, we open it up together, let's take a moment. Let's just pray. God, I thank you just for the moment to gather in this place with our friends and family and church and life. And God, open your word together. Lord, this is a, an amazing moment. Each Sunday as we gather together and we open your word and we talk about what you have for us. And God, we explore your truth. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to us powerfully through your word, that you would demonstrate truth to us in a way that would transform our life. Father, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Uh, Father, it is, uh, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Father, it is true and it is right. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us through it this morning. 
Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to prepare you, uh, to teach you, to open your eyes. Just pray that God would move in you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone around you or beside you, even if you don't know their name. Just be in the habit, as we talk about each week, praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them as well. He would speak to their hearts right where they are. God, we love you. We thank you more than anything for Jesus, for life, for what you demonstrated at the cross, Father, and for your desire for us to know you. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name, amen. Familiar story, Acts chapter 9, talking about Saul, uh, who will later become Paul's conversion and his experience with Jesus and how Jesus radically alters his plan. We're going to take a look at that and then also uh, kind of another guy that's entered into that plan by the name of Ananias. So if you've got your Bible, follow along with me on Acts chapter 9, uh, 1, and we'll kind of go down through uh, 19 or so. But this is... uh, This is that chapter. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision and said, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to his house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now this is a, uh, an encounter, a story, a moment that most of us are really familiar with. In fact, I think we even talked about it on some level in here a time or two. It's a, it's a really important story in history because it's the, the interruption of the life of Saul, who later goes on to become Paul, who's kind of a big deal when it comes to Christian history. And so we've kind of grown up with this story in the back, in our back of our minds. We've, we've uh, even seen it played out in VBS or Vacation Bible School type things, and there's some reenactments and all kinds of things, and we're familiar with this story, because it's the calling of Paul. It's a big story in Scripture. But as I was thinking about this story in light of sort of the context I was in, I, I was really re- realizing this story is about, it's really about plans. It's about control, right? And the story is really pretty fascinating, because Saul is this up-and-coming Pharisee. He's a leader of the, sort of a young leader of the religious elite in Jerusalem. 
We know that he was present at the stoning of Stephen. He's kind of rising up through the ranks. He was trained and discipled by all the right people. And these Christians are causing a problem, right? They're causing a problem for a couple of reasons. One, they're just peasants. They're uneducated men, right? There's nothing special about them. And that annoyed the Pharisees to no ends because the Pharisees were elite. They were highly educated, right? And they were the religious people of prominence. The fact that these Christians were just ordinary people was annoying. They also hated the Christians because of what they stood for, what they believed, that Jesus was the Messiah, the risen Christ, which as we know from kind of Jewish history was a big problem. So Saul, being this up-and-coming kind of religious leader, was annoyed that these Christians were actually gaining prominence. I mean, they were growing. It had gone from 12 to 130 to several, several thousand at this point in time. And they've actually kind of gone beyond Jerusalem and now in places like Damascus and their cells were starting to grow and it was threatening the way of the life of the Pharisees and they hated it, hated it. So Saul kind of being this passionate up-and-comer thought, you know what, I can probably make a name for myself if I go and begin the process of ridding the country of these annoying, right, troublemaking Christians. So he decides that if he does that, most likely he's going to kind of get uh, some high fives on the way up, maybe get some promotions within the sort of religious ranks. And so he goes to the chief priest and he says, listen, since you're not taking care of this problem, let me do it. If you give me a letter that grants me authority, I will take some folks with me and we will go and we will round up all these Christians. And we'll bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail, which ultimately would probably have them tried and killed. Well, the chief priest, who didn't really want to mess with this because these kind of Christian thing was a powder keg because it was really popular, starting to get popularity among the people, right? And so he didn't want to have to mess with it. So he said, okay, you know, Saul, if you really feel like you got the passion, the power to mess with this thing, it's yours. Writes a letter, you know, I, chief priest, give Saul whatever, you know, arrest whoever you want to, sign. Chief priest, boom, hands it to him. Saul gets some folks together and they begin this trek down to the road to Damascus, right? Letter in hand kind of uh, entourage of people. They're looking for people that belong to the way, right? Which is the first time we really see this term used um, in Scripture to refer to the Christian church or Christians. Scholars kind of believe maybe it's because Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or because, you know, Christians felt like that was the way to heaven. No one really knows exactly, but for whatever reason, that was what the church was being called, the way. So if Saul found any people that belonged to the way, he had the authority now to arrest them immediately on the spot, take them back to Jerusalem, throw them in jail. Um, so that's what he's doing. He's walking with this group of people all the way down to this, this road to Damascus, going down from Jerusalem to this road. The story goes that we read that as he was walking, this, this light flashed, this brilliant light from, from heaven flashed. In fact, it was so bright that in chapter 26, when Paul, or now then Paul, is telling King Agrippa about it, he says it was a light that was brighter than the sun. So we're talking about a, you know, showing up from heaven, this flash, this brilliant flash that knocks Saul and his traveling companions straight to the ground, right? And then a voice from heaven comes and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, Saul's response is, Lord, because, I mean, this was something that you didn't see from men. Lord, who are you? And, and the voice says, it's me, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Which is fascinating that Jesus associates himself with the persecution of the church. I mean, that's a sermon for another time, pretty amazing. But he says, it's Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he said, now get up, and you're going to go down to the house of this guy named Judas who lives on Straight Street, and you're basically just going to wait there. Right? So Paul or Saul's companions pick him up. They heard the sound. They didn't see anything. And when Saul gets up, he's blind. Blind. 
being led by the hands of men down to uh, this guy named Judah's house, who he doesn't know on some street that apparently is straight. Right? So he's going down there, being led by the hands of men. Right? So you see this kind of reversal. Here's Saul leading the charge, letter in hand from the uh, chief priests, people in tow with an arrest, kind of ready to, arrest ready to happen, in charge, now being led right, by these other men. So you see this complete reversal. Shows up at this guy's house, and he just waits, blind, blind. Well, then God speaks to this guy in a vision named Ananias, and we don't know anything else about Ananias. The only other time this Ananias is mentioned in Scripture is in chapter 22 in the retelling of the exact same story. So we've got this disciple who no one knows, right? No, not some super special. It's not Peter or John or James. Nothing special. It's just Ananias. And God appears to him in a vision. He says, Ananias, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to this guy named Judas' house on Straight Street, right? And uh, I want you to go to this guy, and I want you to lay hands on him and restore his sight, because I told him in a vision you were going to be coming. And, uh, of course, Ananias' response to God in this vision, this dialoguing they're having in this vision is, uh, hey, Lord, I'm not sure that you know a lot about this guy, Saul, but you know he's got the authority to arrest people, including me, right? Because at the time, Saul was perhaps the most dangerous person in, at that time period. There was no one that was more dangerous because he could throw you in jail just for looking at him and have you killed. So he says, Lord, I don't know if you quite know about this guy. You know, he has the authority from the high priest to arrest me, basically, is what Ananias is saying. People, but he's really saying me because God told him to go. And God's response to Ananias in this vision is, yeah, go, right? I, uh, I've chosen this guy, Saul, to become my instrument to take the gospel of the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people in, in uh, Israel. And I'm going to show him what he has to suffer for my name. So Ananias goes, because when God says go, you, you really need to go. We learned that from our study in Jonah, right? You go, right? And he goes and he walks into this house, which I find fascinating in this story. Is he walks into this house and there is Saul, this, I mean, important guy. A guy that has been arresting Christians. Stood there when Stephen, who all of them probably knew, or at least had heard of, was killed, stoned to death. And uh, you're looking right at him, right? If there's anybody you had the right to seemingly hate uh, for Ananias, it would have to be this guy. He's arresting your brothers, your sisters, not just family, but brothers and sisters in Christ. He's having them killed. He's standing there while Stephen dies. If there's anybody you want to hate and not give love to, it's got to be Saul. But what does Ananias say? He looks at him and he says, brother Saul. This is a powerful statement. I mean, brother, basically saying family. You know, this is not a word we throw around lightly. Brother Saul. God is... Uh, appeared to me in a vision, told me to come and restore your sight. And he places his hands on him, right, and so that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. He places his hands on him, scales or something like that fall from his eyes. He's baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and God begins to move using Saul. Gets a new name, Paul, and later becomes a really big deal. You know, this story, this interaction, this miracle, I mean, this is a miracle of epic proportions, not only because of the brilliant light and the blinding and God doing all those things, right, um, and using Ananias and talking in visions. I mean, there's miracle moments throughout this thing, right, Jesus speaking from heaven. I mean, just cool stuff. But in light of all those things, it's really a kind of a picture of agendas and plans. Because if you look at both of these gentlemen, both Ananias and Saul, they are on polar opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum, right? You've got up-and-coming Pharisee leader Saul who's in charge of this and wants to kill Christians. Then you've got Ananias who, and everyone's heard of Saul. Then you've got Ananias who no one's heard of, who doesn't seem to be a big deal, who God appears to in a vision, who's just trying to faithfully live out his life following Jesus. 
now used for one of the greatest moments in all of Christian history. Totally opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum. Both kind of living according to their own plans. Don't make any mistake about this. This kind of plan that Saul came up with was really about himself. I mean, when it comes to our plans, they're really almost always about us. That's why we call them our plans. They are me-driven. And we're no different from Saul in this standpoint. I mean, Saul's plans are about him. If he captured these Christians, not only would it benefit him because they wouldn't be around, but he would be seen as that conquering hero. He would rise up quickly through the ranks, and people would be like, I don't know if you heard about this guy Saul, but he's a big deal. He rounded up all these Christians, threw them in jail, right? This was going to make a name for Saul. Saul was guided by his own desire, his own agenda for himself. Make no mistake about that. Ananias, when his response to the Lord isn't all that different, right? I mean, God says go, and Ananias is kind of like, well, God, if this is up to me, right? Because I don't think you quite know who Saul is. If it were up to me, right? You would, uh, you would understand who you're asking me to touch. I mean, Ananias, while his plans don't seem to be as blatant, he's still got a different plan than what God initially throws out there, right? He's kind of going, no. I mean, if there's any other way, I'd, I'd really choose that first because I hate this guy, and I probably should, um, and I don't want to go over there. He's dangerous. Our plans, I mean, they're always driven by our agendas, even when we think they're not. I mean, it's even driven by the way we talk to God. I mean, God, what is your plan for my life, right? What do you want me to do, right? Even our prayer lives are driven by the me statements that are just buried throughout them. And I got that question bombarded with me this week over and over. What are are your plans? What are you going to do? Not only with the church, but with your life. I mean, what's, you know, tell us, what's your plan for this? And I was thinking through these texts, and God was just convicting me, saying, it really doesn't matter what my plan is, because what happens as we follow Christ is God shows up in the middle of our plans and radically demonstrates why his plans are better, right? See, our plans are almost always about us, and they're almost always about control, almost always about control. I mean, make no mistake, for both Ananias and Saul, this was about control. Saul was controlling the situation, wanted to be in charge. Ananias was attempting to control, right? God says go, and Ananias has an, an alternate suggestion, which we do with the Lord all the time. God places something on our heart, and we figure out a dozen ways to kind of get around it or not deal with it or to come up with an alternative su- suggestion. And we've talked about control in here a lot, so I'm not going to go into it too much. I mean, in our Jonah series that I mentioned earlier, we did the whole series on the idea of control, right? We talked about that and, and how I believe that control is sort of the chief tension point as followers of Christ that we have in our walks with Jesus. Because we want it and God calls us to give it up, right? That's the, the sort of the chief tension point is that I want control of my life, right? I want to be able to follow Jesus as long as it fits within my structure of what that is. As long as I can save this and do this and go here and have this, then I will give and follow the Lord. But when God's call for me to release control of my life comes in conflict with my desire to hold on to control of my life, we have this incredible tension where most of us live, Right? Because at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the idea of surrender. Surrender. Surrender the idea of giving up, releasing control of our life. Because the gospel calls us to come and die, right? Not come and take over. And most of us live in the middle of that tension point saying, I want to control my life or at least have, because control points out, it kind of gives us this feeling of comfort and safety. And at least if I can feel like I have control, then I can feel safe and comfortable where I am. But God calls us to release it. And to surrender. And of course the great irony in all this is, is, and I've said this a dozen times, there's no such thing as control, right? I mean control is an illusion. There's no such thing. No matter how much we plan or prep or save or give or whatever, 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 we really can't control anything, right? 
I mean, we can't control, you know, who's driving down the road on the other side. We can't control what happens. We can't control the weather. We can't control anything. But when we attempt to, right, it gives us a feeling of safety and comfort. Our plans are driven by me and my desire for control. That's just what it boils down to. And we will always be in conflict in our relationship with Christ as long as those two things are at the center of our desire for our own life. So when I think about my plans and plans for church and plans for life, and they're driven by me and my desire to control things, I will always be at tension in my relationship with Christ, and I will never be living in peace. And the reality is if you're living in the middle of a life right now that does not feel peaceful, I can promise you that most likely what's at the center of it is a battle between you and the Lord over who's in control of your life. And not just physically, but mentally. It's probably about trust and all kinds of things. But what we see in this story is that God's plan is always, always better. There is never an exception to that. I mean, for for Saul, think about it. I mean, he goes on to alter all of human history. God's plan was so much better. God uses him to change. He changed my life. When I gave my life to Christ, it was through a story out of a book that Saul, or now Paul, wrote. When God finally broke my heart. Saul goes on to be used by God to change the world. I mean, Ananias will never be the same, right? I mean, we know this because Jesus could have, or God, whoever, could have healed or given Saul's sight by doing anything. We saw this all through our miracle moments. He could have snapped, could have sneezed, could have, wind could have blown, but he told Ananias to go. Did he need Ananias to go? Absolutely not. God could have done anything he wanted to give Saul sight. So why did he choose Ananias? Because God's plans are always better. See, Ananias being a part of restoring God, uh, Saul's sight was not for God, but it was for Ananias. See, this is what evangelism and mission, when we talk about it a lot, it's never for God. God doesn't need us to go and talk to people about Jesus. God doesn't need us to get involved with mission. God could use the rocks or the wind. See, evangelism and mission are about God moving in us and us being faithful. God doesn't need you to tell your coworker about Christ, right? God could use anyone or anything, but God wants to use you because it will change you. And God's plan is always better. And so I don't know what your tension point in your life is right now. Whatever kind of area you're struggling with control over your life or your plans or your agenda. But as I was bombarded with these questions this week, spending time with my friends, I thought, man, God, I am back in a place where I am trying to control and move my own life, right? We've got to be in places where we surrender control to your life. If you're living in tension, if you're living in not living, if you're living in a lack of peace, most likely it's because you're saying, God, I want to follow my plan, and my plan is about me controlling my life, and God is probably whispering and speaking something different to you. This is a really interesting time in the life of our church. We've got a lot of exciting things going on. Hopefully in the next few weeks we're going to have some really cool announcements to make about what God is doing that could alter kind of our trajectory. You know we've been looking for venue space. We've got some opportunities that we're really exploring that we're hoping, hoping and praying that work out, trusting that God is leading. Um, And we would love for you to keep praying for us. Hope we'll have some things to talk about in the next few weeks. We're, We're really trying to think differently about how we handle children. We're pursuing that as well. All these things are things that we could lay out. What I was convicted about this week is that as a church, the moment we try and steer our own direction is a moment where we're going to realize very quickly that God's plan 
and our plan are going to come in drastic conflict with each other. We need to surrender our hearts as a church to the will of God. And as individuals, it begins there. It's people surrendering our hearts saying, Jesus, I want what you want for me. And I don't know when the last time you've prayed over your plan saying, God, I don't want what I want, I want what you want, even if it costs me everything. I mean, look at what Saul had to let go of. This morning we're participating in, in communion together. We do it once a month. And it is probably the ultimate picture of a surrendered life. I mean, because remember Jesus, the ultimate picture of surrender, surrender to the will of the Father and said, God, not what I want, but what you want. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was betrayed, as he's praying, he's saying, Father, if there's any other way than for me to go this route on this cross and die this way, I'd take it. But whatever you want, not what I want. I mean, that's the ultimate picture of surrender. And yet I fight God every day about the things that I want in my life or I think I need. This table is a picture of surrender. It's a picture of Jesus laying down his life because he loves you and me so much. So desperately that he went to the cross and died that we might know him. This morning as we prepare to take this meal together and share in this experience, we really need to reconcile our hearts with are we living in tension with God? Or is there something I need to release and let go of before I come up and share in this? Because this table is a picture of a life that says, Jesus, I want what you have for me over what, what I have for me. Even if that means risking, being uncomfortable, going with less, whatever. I want what you want. Because what God wants is always better. And guess who wins in the end? Always God. His way or his way. Surrendering our hearts to him is the key to falling in love with Jesus. This table was the picture of that. It's a picture of God's extravagant love for us. You know, on that very night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat there with his disciples and he shared this meal. It's a picture, it's a picture of his extravagant love. And as he sat there, he, he took this loaf of bread and he blessed it and he looked up to heaven and he said, this bread is my body broken for you, broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. When we take of this cup, we eat of this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This table is not a denominational table at all. It's open to all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's open to all those that say, Jesus, I love you and you are my Lord and Savior. And it is the picture of God's extravagant love for us. This morning we'll be taking communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy word for just saying, should you come through the line, take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. As we always challenge people, I want you to deal with the Lord before you really come and participate in this meal. This isn't a habit or a ritual. It's, an, it's God's investment in your life. And if you've got something you need to let go of, release, or pray over, then take those moments and do that. We operate in a little bit of chaos. So we don't have perfect lines where everybody has to come and follow the people around you. Just get up and come when you're ready. We'll have two stations, one down here, one, one on this side, and one over here. When you're ready... Come, the band will be leading us in worship and then feel free to join in. But deal with the Lord. Because there comes a time in our life where we have to reconcile the tension and decide if we're going to say, Jesus, I want to surrender my heart and my life and my plans to you 
um, because your plan is always better. And I want to follow you. Because this is the perfect picture of surrender. Let's pray together.